Thank you, Sharon. Good morning. I'd like to welcome all of you to our worship service this morning and to those listening on radio. I have several announcements before we start our service. The roses on the altar this morning are in honor of two couples that will be celebrating wedding anniversaries this week. Michael and Lynn McCabe will be celebrating 53 years of marriage on Tuesday, November 14th. And also Terry and Rebecca Houston will be celebrating 54 years of marriage on Thursday, November 16th. So congratulations to both couples. This morning, following our service, the youth will be selling First First Church cookbooks today in the parking lot entrance. I went over that ten times last night to make sure I didn't stub my toe, but I did anyway. Cookbooks are, with Christmas season coming, the cookbooks will make a great holiday gift or stocking stuffer. Cost of the books is $15 per book, or you can buy two for $25. Shannon Rittiger will be coming home from her 11-month mission trip shortly before Thanksgiving. And on Sunday afternoon, December 3rd, she will give a presentation about her experiences in the ministry center that day. And my last announcement today is with the deadline for the Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes, they need to be brought in by next Sunday, November 19th at 4 p.m. You do not have to be a, have a child in Sunday school to participate. We encourage all of you to fill out a shoe box for the needy children around the world. Brochures are available at all the entrances today. And the shipping for those boxes will be taken care of by the Sunday School Department. And now to start our service, would you please rise and join me in our preparation for worship. This morning it is taken from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Please remain standing for opening song this morning. Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone.
As the children come forward for the children's chat with Mrs. Rohrball, just take a moment and greet one another. Good morning. Okay, well, I have a little story for you today, because today we're in church, we're talking about grace alone. Um, So the story goes, there was a boy who got in trouble on the playground, and he was in trouble with the principal for not obeying. So the principal called home and told mom and dad. When the boy got home, the dad sent him straight to his room. When the dad finally came out or came up to his room, the dad asked what he thought his punishment should be. And the boy looks at dad and says, I think I should be grounded for two weeks. And dad said, okay, well, that sounds like a fair punishment. And I agree with that. But instead, I want you to come downstairs and I want you to eat supper with us. And then afterwards, I'm going to take you out for ice cream. The boy just looks at his dad and just smiles. And he says, my son, he says, that's grace. Grace is receiving a blessing that you didn't earn and don't deserve. Um. God doesn't love us any less if we do all the right things. And God doesn't love us any more, or God doesn't love us any less if we don't do the right things. And he doesn't love us any more if we do do the right things. Because it's not a right or wrong thing. Grace, it tells us in Ephesians that God saved you by his grace when you believed And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done. So so none of us can boast about it. So we can't take credit for grace. And the biggest display of God showing his grace or his love towards us was him dying on the cross. When we're born, we're born sinners. But when God, when we accept Christ into our hearts, we are accepting God's grace for his ultimate gift that he ever gave us so that we could one day live in heaven with him. So we are saved by grace. So we should live our lives by grace. Because it also tells us in the Bible that, that we should also show grace to others. So what that means is if, who's got a brother and a sister? Okay. I have a sister. You have a sister? So if you're playing with your brother or your sister at home, and say they make you really, really, really mad, maybe they took your favorite coloring book, they, they ripped your toy, your favorite toy, out of your hands and started playing it instead, we can show them grace by easily letting them play with our things and loving them because God loves us. That's very good to share. Sometimes I let my brother play hug my cat. Hug your cat, okay. (laughs) So anyways, so takeaway from today is that God gives us grace and we should give grace to others. So let's bow our heads and let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your ultimate gift of your son's life on the cross for us. That we were once sinners, but Lord, with your grace and your love, that we can one day live with you in heaven. Lord, um, show these kids this week that um, examples of grace and how they can show grace to others, whether it's a family member, a friend, or a stranger. In your son's name we pray, amen. Listen up to those lost in our service in the last week. In Afghanistan, Sergeant First Class Stephen B. Cribben, 33, killed in Logar Province from Simi Valley, California. In Norfolk, Virginia, killed was aviation boatswain mate 
James Nakia Henderson, Jr., 20, from Chicago, Illinois. In Sutherland Springs, Texas, a week ago, Chief Master Sergeant Robert Corrigan, 51, U.S. Air Force, retired. Sergeant Robert Scott Marshall, 56, U.S. Air Force, retired. His wife, Master Sergeant Karen Sue Marshall, 56, and Keith Braden, U.S. Army. Yesterday was the 98th remembrance of what we now call Veterans Day. It began in 1919 called Armistice Day. This was named after the armistice, which was the 11th hour of the 11th day of November of 1918, when hostilities ceased across the Western Front in World War I. The peace treaty was the, signed in Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles was signed the next June in 28 in Versailles, France, just outside of Paris. In November of 1919, then, President Wilson proclaimed November 11th as the commemoration of Armistice Day, concluding with the following words. To us in America... The reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in the country's service and with gratitude for the victory, both because of the thing from which it has freed us and because of the opportunity has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in the Council of Nations. Following that, later that same year, in June of, I'm sorry, in June of uh, uh, 1926, then it was passed to be an official recognition of the day. The law then was passed, and uh, in, in that particular resolution. The first was a proclamation by the president. The second was a resolution. The resolution from Congress reads as follows. Whereas the 11th of November, 1918, marked the cessation of the most destructive, sanguinary, and far-reaching war in human annals and the resumption by the people of the United States of peaceful relations with other nations, which we hope may never again be severed, and whereas it is fitting that the recurring anniversary of this date should be commemorated with thanksgiving and prayer and exercises designed to perpetuate peace through goodwill and mutual understanding between nations. And whereas the legislatures of 27 of our states have already declared November 11th to be a legal holiday, therefore be it resolved by the Senate, the House of Representatives concurring, that the President of the United States is requested to issue a proclamation calling upon the officials to display the flag of the United States on all government buildings on November 11th and inviting the people of the United States to observe the day in schools and churches and other suitable places with appropriate ceremonies of friendly relations with all peoples. This was in 1926. And, of course, the war to end all wars, which was the First World War, saw the death of somewhere around 18 to 20 million people worldwide. In 1938, the U.S. Code was approved. This became law then, that the 11th of November in each year was a legal holiday to be dedicated to the cause of world peace and thereafter celebrated and known as Armistice Day was primarily a day set aside to honor veterans of World War I. But then in 1954, seeing what happened in World War II and Korea, it was then in 1954 amended to change the word armistice to veterans. Hence, now it is called Veterans Day. To keep Veterans Day in 2017, I would now ask
while I read your service to stand if you have served. U.S. Army and National Guard. U.S. Navy. You may remain standing. U.S. Marine Corps. U.S. Coast Guard. U.S. Air Force. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Jay, for reminding us of the, the importance of this day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, for these the, the men and women in this congregation as well as around this country and who are still serving around this world, Lord, uh, in the armed forces in a, as a way to, to ensure peace and the protection of this, this land. I thank you for their sacrifice, both emotional and physical, and I pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, as a way to honor this day, Lord, we ask that you would bring peace to this world and this nation. Lord, that people would no longer have to take up arms against each other. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will return as the King of Peace and pray that that day would come soon. We thank you for the, the many sacrifices these people have made and pray that you would continue to honor them and bless them for, for their service. Lord, we also lift up other concerns that are on our heart this morning. We pray for the continued recovery of the, the Salina and surrounding areas after the tornado last week. We pray for, for quick, uh, Lord, recovery of these buildings and the businesses, Lord, that were damaged. Um, thank you that as far as I'm aware, there was no loss of life, but we do pray for those who were injured for their quick healing and recovery. Lord, we also keep in mind the, the Sutherland Springs, Texas community, and especially the church there that was ravaged by violence last week and the loss of of some 26 lives. Uh, we pray, Lord, for, for healing for those who are injured. Pray for peace and comfort for that community as they mourn the, that loss. And Lord, we thank you for the, the testimony of resurrection, Lord, um, as, they, as they as a church gather this morning once again to worship you. Uh, we pray for your blessing upon them and for all those, Lord, uh, that are part of the body of Christ that are, that are gathering this morning to witness and to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would honor that, and that, that as we gather in this place to worship you, that you would make your presence known to us and in our hearts, and that we would worship you in spirit this morning. We pray, Lord, all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward at this time. Our offering this morning goes to support the missionaries in Zambia, South Africa.
Good morning. <laughs> My scripture sheet is paired. <laughs> there we go. Our reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you would remain standing, we'll sing song number May be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to, to come together and to worship you. I pray now that as we turn to your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today, and that you'd give me words to speak. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A friend of mine used to tell the story to help explain and, and, and help us to wrap our mind around the concept of grace and what that means. And he talked about how when he was a child, he would go out to dinner with his parents. They'd often go out to dinner with other families, you know, at the same time, and they'd have a meal together. And as a child, he would sit there and he would watch the, the, two, parent, the two sets of parents, right, fight over the bill. Right. They, you know, you know how that goes, right? One couple wants to pay and they say, no, no, let me do it. And it's just kind of back and forth. And he'd sit there and observe the, what they were doing and observe how they interacted with each other. But the one thing he knew was that he didn't have to pay it, right? That was, he, as a kid, he understood that, that they could fight over the bill and they could argue over who was going to pay it. But as a child, he knew that he, had, he didn't have to, to put the money forward to pay for the meal. In a sense, that's kind of what grace is like. Grace is knowing that the check has been paid for, right? And that we are not responsible. We are not being held accountable to pay the bill but it has been paid for us 
already. Last week we talked about the, the concept of Christ alone. And really, we, there was a lot of, if you're here with us last week, there was a lot of information, right, that was part of that message. There was a lot that was, that I kind of threw out there for you. But the reason I did that is because that idea of Christ alone, today's topic of grace alone, and the next week as we talk about faith alone, they all fit together. It's almost like a, it's, it's almost like a three-part sermon that's being stretched out over, over three weeks. Christ alone really sets the stage for what we're talking about when we talk about grace and what we talk about when we talk about faith. And so, so um, hopefully you were here with us last week, um, but we'll be kind of building off of what we talked about, um, Christ as our, as our prophet, priest, and king, and what he did for us, especially through his death on the cross. And this week, as we talk about grace, we're going to be talking about God's action toward us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Grace is God's action toward us through Christ, in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And next week, as we talk about faith, We'll talk about our spirit-enabled response to what God's to God's grace made available through Christ. So to think about it this way, grace is God's action toward us, and faith is our response then to that grace. And so we'll be talking about what that means next week. But for today, we're going to focus on grace, God's action toward us. Shelby gave a great definition of grace during children's chat, right? Getting what you don't deserve, right? Being given something that you didn't earn. That, and in its very essence, is what grace is all about. And, and grace takes a couple different forms, well, many different forms, but kind of two categories that I want to just highlight for us before we begin today. There's common grace, which is that good that we can all experience simply because of God's grace towards us and the whole world. So common graces are things like, like the rain that, that, that comes down on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? The sun that shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't matter whether you've put your trust in Christ, we can re- still receive the benefits of God's goodness in creation and in the world today. I think an a, a example that is very, I think, important to us today and very obvious to us today is modern medicine. Think about the advancements and think about all of the good that has come just in the past 50 years in terms of modern medicine. And that's not available just to Christians, right? Anybody can go. Right? Anybody can go and experience the grace that medicine and, and life-saving operations and procedures provide. I know as I go and, and I visit people in the hospital and I pray with them, of course I pray for God's healing, right? I pray that God, God would heal them right then and right there. I think God is, is quite able to do that and, and still does that today. But I also thank God for the miracle of modern medicine, right? That common grace that we can all experience, that, that if we are sick, we can go and get the help that we need because of God's goodness and, and his graciousness towards us. And so there's common grace that we all experience, whether we're Christian or not, whether we trust the Jesus with our lives or not, that we can all experience because of God's goodness. But then, in addition to common grace, there's also saving grace. The grace that we freely receive by faith the grace that, that is, is Christ's righteousness given to us in exchange for our sin. We receive the grace and the blessing of Christ in place of our sin. He takes our sin upon His shoulders on the cross like we talked about last week. He paid the price. He was the sacrifice for our sins so that we could freely receive that gift of righteousness and mercy through Christ. And so there's common grace that's available to everyone that we can all experience, but then there's saving grace. There's saving grace that God has, that freedom, that, that salvation that God has made possible and made available through Jesus Christ. And that is available and open to all, but yet some reject it and don't experience it. And we see that grace uh, described in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, 
according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. See, God's grace, his salvation that he's made available through his son, Jesus Christ. Grace alone means that we depend completely on God's grace for our salvation. Right? It's not something we can earn. It's not something that we can, we can do to deserve. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. Grace is grace because it's freely given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is primarily about what Jesus has done for us, not what we can do for him. And that's a, that's a point of struggle, I think, for a lot of people. I know it is for me at times, right? We want to do stuff for God. We want to earn it. We want to, we want to earn our keep. But yet grace is that gift, that salvation that's freely offered to us through Christ because of what he's done for us on the cross, not because of what we can do for him. And we see that grace described to us in our passage that Connie read for us, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I just want to read it again to highlight the importance of this passage. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a couple key things in this passage that we need to remember that, that help us to understand God's grace. First is that we need, in order to receive God's grace, one must recognize our, our, our own powerlessness and our own sinfulness. See, it says here that while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And later on it says, God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the truth from, from human experience, but also as we see in God's, God's word, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all are sinners, all are unrighteous, and, and by nature deserving of God's punishment. The sin that... that that is that we inherited through through Adam and the sin that we we commit in our own lives it's deserving of punishment it's that barrier that's been built up and separates us from our creator but through Christ he has made possible has made it possible to destroy that barrier of sin but first of all in order to recognize that in order to receive it we need to recognize our own sinfulness and it affects everyone Right? Sinfulness is not just for those people out there, right? Sinfulness infects us as well. In order to really understand God's grace and his love for us, we need to recognize our own sinfulness and the mistakes that we've made. It's hard to accept if you think about it. We think we're generally good, but don't really understand the magnitude of our sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We often underestimate. We think we're simply good people that have just gone astray. But the Bible says that because of our sin, we have been completely cut off and separated from God. And that because of our sin, none of us are able to even reach out to God in our own efforts, in our own accord. Instead, God had to reach out to us. There's different words that the Bible uses to describe sin. Um, and we see them all in the first couple of verses of Psalm 51, that great prayer of confession that David writes after he was confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba. He uses three different words. One is what we often call transgression, which is that willful wrong, like that trespassing. We know something is wrong, and yet we do it anyways. Right? And, we can all relate to that, right? We know the good we ought to do, but we don't do it. Another word is simply the word sin, which often has the, the connotation of missing the mark. It's like actually a term from archery, right? You aim at a target, you shoot, but you still miss. So it's that, un, it's that unwillful, it's that, that unintentional sin. We try our hardest, but we still fall short. None of us hit the target every time. And the third word that's often used is iniquity. And iniquity describes that depravity that affects our human nature. It's that, it's that sin that just by nature belongs to us. 
I know I've used this example in my Sunday school class and maybe here, but if anybody's been around a newborn baby, right, you know the, the, the reality of, of, of original sin, right? They are just so self-centered and crying out and everything is about them, right? That's, that's the nature of sin. It's a very self-centered attitude, right? And it's something that affects each and every one of us simply by nature. It's like a disease that has infected all of us and we need to be cured of it. And so as we try to understand the depth of our sin, as we try to understand just what, how much of a price God paid for us, we need to change our vocabulary as we think about ourselves. We often think about our life as Christians as in terms of good and bad, right? I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, or I'm good and they're bad, right? We think in terms of those sorts of categories. And the problem with that is that when we talk about being good or being bad, that sort of mindset puts the focus on ourselves. Good and bad is all about how we live and how we relate to the law. And in a sense, if we're, when we use those categories, it's like we can somehow, if we just try hard enough, if we just do the right things, then we can become good and God must love us and accept us for that. But if we can earn our righteousness based on being good enough, then Jesus died for nothing. If we can simply just try harder and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, then why did Jesus come to die in the first place? Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It's prideful, really, to think we can save ourselves. Right? It's prideful to think that we can do enough to earn God's love and His favor. When we have that sort of mindset, we're underestimating the power and the depth of our sin. And so instead of thinking of ourselves in terms of good and bad, I think it's, it's better to think of ourselves in terms of dead or alive. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it talks about how we are, we are dead in our sin and trespasses, but we've been made alive through Christ. Good and bad are irrelevant. It's just a matter of whether you're dead or alive. I think of some of you out there maybe fans of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? The, the scene of the Black Knight when, when he doesn't want to let King Arthur cross over the bridge, right? And, and so they have to fight in one-on-one combat and King Arthur cuts off his arm, right? And he says, all right, the battle's over. And he says, no, it's just a scratch, right? He's missing an arm. And so the fight continues and he cuts off his other arm. He says, it's just a flesh wound, Right? And eventually he ends up losing both arms and both legs and he wants to keep the fight going. He completely underestimates just how severe his injuries are. Right? And we do the same thing with our sin. We think, oh, it's just a scratch. It's just a flesh wound. It's no big deal. When we completely underestimate, we don't understand just how severe our injuries are. We don't understand the depth of our sin. And if we don't understand the depth of our sin, we won't really understand and appreciate God's grace. See, God's grace is a humbling experience. It points out the fact that we can't do anything to save ourselves. It goes against our sensibilities of trying to earn our keep, trying to pay for our own meal. So that God's grace forces us to admit that we can't do those things. And in humility, we need to receive what we can't earn for ourselves. And so therefore, we need to confess that we are powerless to save ourselves. We need to come to God and say, look, I can't do it. I need you. I need your help. We need to remember that we, we don't need to clean up our act before receiving God's grace. God's grace receives us just as we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God's grace transforms us then after we've been received into God's family. It's a response to God's grace, not a requirement. The other thing we often do is we put stipulations on God's grace. We say, God must conform to my standard. We may say, God must accept me just as I am. Therefore, I'm not going to change, right? But instead, we have no claim on God. We can't put stipulations on His grace. Think of a story, and I'm not going to be able to remember exactly when or where this happened, but, but, but back in the Middle Ages, there was a king who, trans, who, um, who converted to Christianity. And as, as part of that conversion, his army was, was to be baptized. And so they walked out into the water, and as one, they were all baptized. But as soon as they were about to go under the water, they lifted up their sword arms and kept them out of the water. In other words, they were giving their entire lives to Christ except for 
their sword arms, except for their service to the king. But that's not really giving your lives to Christ if you're, if you're holding something back, if you're unwilling to allow God's grace to work in every aspect of your life. How many of us hold on to something? How many of us hold on to the area of the li- our lives that we don't let God's grace get to? Whether it's work or something to do with family life, we often try to hold on and, and close God off from certain areas. But if we want to receive God's grace, we must allow, we must allow it to do the hard work of sanctification on us. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, what shall, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So we, need, we must recognize that we're powerless to save ourselves. The other thing we learn is that grace demonstrates God's great love for us. So we are sinners. We're powerless to save ourselves. But yet God, through Christ, has reached out to us. And righteousness and justification comes through Jesus Christ. He was obedient to the law when we were not. And so He gives us freely His righteousness to those who believe. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might, might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death reigns through sin, but God has made, av- made available eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's not that God accepts some and rejects others arbitrarily. God accepts all those who are in Christ on the basis of His righteousness. So we have life in Christ, but death apart from Him. And Jesus' death and resurrection is key to our justification and eternal life. See, the cross is where God's love is on full display, where God's grace and His mercy is shown, as well as His holiness. Right? Christ took on the punishment that we deserved. In exchange, we receive His righteousness. It's God's love being made known to us. And it's God's love that motivated Him to make that possible. And so God's love needs to transform us then from the inside out. We're saved by grace, not by works, but our good works should then be evidence of that grace in our lives. In other words, if, you've, if you think you've experienced God's grace, but it's made no impact on you, you need to rethink whether you've experienced God's grace or not. It's not your good works that save you, but you should be, you should be encouraged and transformed to do good works based on that grace that you've experienced. Does that make sense? The fruit, the good works in our lives are evidence of God's grace at work. We see that spelled out for us in, in the book of Ephesians. We're obviously not going to read the whole book, but it's six chapters long. And the first three chapters are really about, about the gospel, right? It's theology, it's truth, it's, it's, it's Paul unpacking the gospel for us and so that we can understand it. And then chapters four through six are, if that is true, then this then is how you should live. Four through six is all the practical living out and the application of the gospel. And so we see that. We see God's grace being made known, but then this is how you should then live in response to it. If you've really experienced God's grace, it should transform you from the inside out. It should soften your heart so that you are then able to do what God really wants you to do. Live as, as, as close, as like Christ as we can. And so we need to allow God's grace and His love to transform us. Repentance is a way of life, not a one-time decision. We need that constant, Spirit-enabled realignment of our life with the life of Christ. We often think of confession, right, or repentance as this one-time act, right? I prayed a prayer when I was, you know, in in sixth grade, and, and now I'm saved. But it's an ongoing thing. It's something we must continually do, day to day and even moment to moment realign our lives with Christ. We have a tendency to wander. We have a tendency to forget. And so it's that constant reminder of what it means to follow Him. You see, love does not leave us where we are. It does not leave us in bondage to sin. It wants what's best for us, not just what is easy. And so we need to allow our hearts, our lives to be like that good soil that produces a good crop. As we live in repentance, we must become that good soil. The gospel 
needs to take root in our lives and produce fruit. Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It's actually John the Baptist speaking to the religious leaders of his day. And he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So the key there is to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not fruit so that we can earn our way into God's, God's kingdom. It's the fruit that is the evidence of the grace that we've experienced. And finally, grace motivates us to then share God's love with others. So we need to recognize our sinfulness and our powerlessness. We need to allow God's love to transform us. But then we need to share that with others. Our mission is to take the love we have received and pass that on. We need to freely give to others what we ourselves have freely received. And God's love is made complete in us when we love others like God has loved us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and he has made his love complete in us. So for those of us who have experienced God's grace, for those of us who have, have put our trust in Christ and received that for ourselves, we need to figure out a way to pass that on to other people. We need to allow God's Spirit to work in us in such a way that we, our hearts are transformed and we're looking beyond ourselves, right, and wanting to extend that grace and that love to everyone we meet. We need to forgive as we've been forgiven. Have we really understood or experienced God's grace if we don't extend it to others? Think of the parable of the unmerciful servant who had been forgiven such a large debt and he then went out and demanded that others pay up the debt they owed him. Right? He had been forgiven. He had been extended grace and yet he was unwilling to extend it to others. You see, we can never run out of God's grace. We can't give it away so much that we lose it ourselves. I'm reminded of the, the feeding of the multitudes. There's several instances in the Gospels where Jesus feeds thousands of people with a small basket of food, right? A couple loaves of bread and some fish. And he's able to feed 5,000 people. The food never ran out. The more they passed that basket, the more they shared, the more food there was for everybody to have. It was a miracle that God was able to provide in that way. But he does the same thing with grace. It's never going to run out. right? God's love is never going to run dry. The more we share it, the more we pass it around, the more we extend it to others, the more there will be to experience for ourselves and the more we can share that with others. It's only when we hoard it, it's when we hold on to it that that love seems to run dry. And so we need to be an extension of God's love and grace in this world. I want to close with reading one more passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18-22. through 22 reminds us that we are, as the body of Christ, as His church, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are His presence in the world. And, and as, His, as His presence in this world, we are called to, to, to be an example and shine His light in a dark world. For though, through Him, we have both access to the Father by one Spirit, Consequently, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We are called to be God's presence in this world. Through His Spirit indwelling in us, we are called to reach out and extend God's grace and love to others. And so we need to be that light in a dark place. If we've truly experienced God's grace, we need to extend it and share it with others. We've received freely. We couldn't earn it ourselves. We've experienced God's grace through Christ. Let's share it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You that, that You have extended us grace through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And that it is not something we can earn. 
But Lord, it's not about being good or being bad. It's about being made alive in Christ after being dead in our sins. So help us all now to, to put our trust in you and receive that grace that you've offered to us. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and in closing sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The words are printed in your bulletin. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Go in peace. Amen.